0: This is episode 12 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Morris, and welcome to the show. <laughs> good morning or good evening depending on whatever time of the day you are listening to this, or good afternoon, there is also such a thing as afternoon. If you don't know me, my name is Kevin Morris, and I am the creator and writer for BetterBibleReading.com, and I also am the host of this podcast, which is also the same title, Better Bible Reading Podcast. This is episode 12 of the podcast. I'm so glad you've taken time to listen to this episode If you've been following along, we've been talking about the writing styles of the Bible, and I'm taking a quick break from that. I got about one or two more topics I want to cover in that little uh, series, but today I wanted to take some time to talk about a concept that is pretty familiar to those of you in the business world, those of you in the entrepreneur world, or those of you who are just trying to find a way to make your time stretch further to get the things done that you want to get done and to live the kind of life that you want. And that concept, that phrase that's been thrown around a lot here in the culture the last few years especially, is the idea of work-life balance. And uh, this episode, I don't want to jump on the bandwagon. Even if I wanted to, it'd probably be a little bit too late to jump on the bandwagon because this idea has been going for some time now. Uh, But what I did want to do is address the way that I think it's a helpful concept from a Christian perspective. That's why this episode is called Work-Life Balance for Christians. Maybe another title I could have used would be Work-Life Balance for Bible Readers. And of course, that's what this show is all about, helping you be a better Bible reader, and that is in no way able to be divorced from our lives, specifically the balance that we're fighting for as employees or employers for work and for life. There's a balance that we want to try to find, and that, of course, intersects every single day with reading the Bible. So, we're going to address a few things, and of course, as is common on this show, I want to address it not just from a philosophical standpoint, but I want to address it from what the Bible has to say. If we want to understand Bible reading and how it intersects with the concept of work-life balance, then we want to go to the Bible to see what it might have to say about that. And uh, I I think that as we look, uh, we'll be able to find some pretty interesting answers and pretty interesting concepts for us to think about and hopefully use in our lives in a way that's helpful. But first, uh, let me just tell you, What the uh, Wikipedia website, and I'm not always a huge fan of Wikipedia, but it's good for a little reference point. Um, In this case, I just did a simple Google search for work-life balance to try to see what kind of things come up. Right now, I'm seeing the top search results. You got something from Mental Health America. You got an article from Mayo Clinic. Uh, Wikipedia. uh, Top Stories. Rihanna has a simple calendar hack for her new work-life balance. I mean, th- this is, as I said, a, a huge uh, cultural uh, norm that's being fought for. And I think it's probably because so many people are finding uh, burnout to be their norm. And uh, obviously, burnout is not a good thing for anyone in any profession or vocation. And uh, so, anyhow, the idea of work-life balance... Just typing in a search, the first thing that comes up in the very top on the side is a simple definition from Wikipedia. Here's what it says. It says, work-life balance is the lack of opposition between work and other life roles. It is the state of equilibrium in which demands of personal life, professional life, and family life are equal. If you read that in a secular uh, template or framework, uh, you kind of hear ideas of Buddhism. Buddhism's all about that everything's balanced, right? You think about the picture of yin and yang, the white and the black, and that's all about balance. And what I don't want to do is tell you that we're just going to just take off of, Buddhism, what's helpful, and then apply it to Christianity. What I want to show you is that this idea of work-life balance, obviously the phrase itself is not used in the Bible, but the idea of it is certainly biblical, not first and foremost secular, and certainly not first and foremost uh, from the uh, Buddhist uh, religion. So here is what the Apostle Peter has to say about the Christian life, this is eight verses found in the second letter of Peter, 2 Peter, the very first chapter. I'll read it. Here's what it says, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Here's our key here that we want to look at in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that set of verses in Second Peter, you'll see that common phrase being used is the idea of supplementing and what's the point when you think about vitamins and supplements the whole point of it is where your diet might be out of whack or out of balance the things you eat you might be getting way too many grains or way too many vitamin d or something like that and the idea of supplements is to balance out where you are deficient so that you're equal across all categories in terms of diet and eating. And that's exactly the idea that Peter has in mind here when he's talking to us. First and foremost, these are kind of the, idea, the same idea as what Paul calls the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. So in some ways, this is kind of a... Uh, Character analysis for Christians, and Peter is basically saying to be a proper, legitimate Christian, there's no such thing as a Christian who is absolutely wonderful at one fruit of the Spirit and just kind of sucks at everything else. That's not possible, first of all. Uh, because he says in the next verse, whoever lacks these qualities, notice he he bunches them all together, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So if we're not firing on all eight cylinders, as it were, then we're out of step with what it means to be a Christian. And certainly that doesn't mean that we will never sin or that we are just absolutely perfect all the time. But what it does uh, mean is that We as believers want to be uh, consistent across the board. We want to have a good balance in our lives, who we are first and foremost, but also in what we do. Um, In in every category, we, we want to be not good in some things and then bad in others, but great in some things and good in others, if I could put it that way. And when we think about work-life balance, it kind of spills over into that. Because again, what is the point of having the fruits of the Spirit? What's the point of having love and godliness and steadfastness and self-control if it's divorced from everyday life, right? These are qualities, but qualities are supposed to be put into practice. They're supposed to relate to the real world that we live in, which is that work-life balance concept. How do you divorce work-life balance from life? You, you really can't, right? Because unless you're just chilling at the house all day and somebody just pays you money because you're alive, which could be true for some people, but most of us, that's not the case, right? We normally don't walk outside and just find checks from everybody all day long if we haven't done any work whatsoever to uh, receive those checks. So... For us, our lives revolve around work and everything outside of work. And I don't care who you are, you're always trying to find some kind of balance for all those things. You might be bad at it, but you try to find some kind of balance. The most important uh, verifier of this is the fact that you go to sleep every single day. And if you miss a day of sleep, you will quickly regain that because if you don't, you'll die eventually, right? If you just never sleep, your body will shut down and you will die. So all of us try to find a balance between work and non-work the rest of our lives, which includes rest, and the way that every single person without exception fights for that is by sleeping. We know intrinsically that there is such a thing as balance. We can't work 24-7. If we do, we will die. So, And also, we can't just live without ever working because we'll never have any income, we'll never have a sense of purpose and drive, and we will basically shrivel up and become a vegetable. So, that sounds very hope-giving and happy, doesn't it? Well, let's help each other here. Let's think about this idea of work-life balance and what it means for us as Christians, not just ooh, the new cultural norm of how this person or that person has their just impeccable calendar that they follow, right? That, that's fine, but we're Christians, we're Bible readers, we want to look at this from a perspective of what the Lord has to say. And we can go no further than the very first chapter of the Bible to see this idea of work-life balance. You know the story all too well, I'm sure. If you don't, we're talking about Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, where God creates the heavens and the earth. There's so many things we could really look at in this idea, but to keep it related to this episode, we'll just think about Genesis 1 and 2 from a work-life balance perspective. This is certainly not everything there is to say about Genesis 1 and 2, of course, But for this episode, we want to think about it in terms of work-life balance. And we see that God creates the heavens and the earth. There's a relatability between the earth itself and the aspects of that, which would also include the sun and the moon and the stars, and then uh, the dry ground and the ocean, the water, the sea. And then there's also a relatability to that with their, if you will, somewhat of a balance with uh, the creatures that are made, right? There's creatures made for the sky, there's creatures made for the water, and there's creatures made for the dry ground, all according to their kinds, as the text says again and again. And in all of this, God sees that it is good. And then you come to man. When God creates man, there's not a helper, there's not a balance, right? There's not a helper suitable for him, and God sees this is not good. Man, by himself, is out of balance, he needs a helper, so he creates woman. And then there's this beautiful picture again. Everything is very good. There's a balance, right? And then when we get to the concept of the days themselves, we know this, that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and then on the seventh day, God rested, Well, God didn't do that because he was just tired and needed a break. He is God, after all. He doesn't need breaks. He could have created everything in one split second. He could have created it in a nanosecond. But God created and structured the order of creation, if you will, in a way to help us, to inform us, and to give us a pattern. That's when we get to the Ten Commandments and Moses gives the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. It's grounded and founded in the creation account. Why should we keep the Sabbath day holy? He says, if you read the full disclosure, so so many of us know the Ten Commandments just by a Ten Commandments uh, poster or chart that we've seen in Sunday school or something like that, but I'd encourage you to read it as a full text, because when you read it in Exodus, for example, there's actually a few phrases of commentary that follow a few of the commandments. Not all of them, like thou shalt not murder, but there are uh, some commentaries, and the Sabbath day is one of those commentaries, and what I want to do real quick is just turn here and read it uh, to you. This is in uh, Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus, chapter twenty. Here's what the commandment about the Sabbath day is: Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, many of our Ten Commandments posters just go to the next commandment, but there's actually uh, more that is said here. Here's what it says: Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It keeps going. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. And here's the rationale for it. Why should we keep the Sabbath day holy? It says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, you see, in the Bible, God doesn't rest because he was just so burnt out from everything that he did because he is God. Rather, the reason that he did it was as an example and a template for us. We are not God. We have to rest or we will die, and God has given us a beautiful pattern for that, and the reason is grounded in the creation account. Again, we're getting back to the idea of work-life balance. That's what we see here in Genesis. God has called us to live a balanced life. He has commanded us that we should work. Work isn't evil. Six days you shall labor, you shall work, but the seventh day you shouldn't, you should rest. There's a balance that needs to be had, and it's not even a 50-50 balance, it's a six out of seven balance. But that day of rest is a day that God has blessed. He's blessed, it. it's good for us to do that. And of course, that brings us to the question, okay, if we should labor... For six days. Does that mean we should just be running wide open for six days and then just crash on the seventh day and sleep all day and try to just regain our physical strength by the time day one rolls around again? Well, no. There's within the days of work, there are elements of rest that should be had, both physical and spiritual, just as. The Sabbath day is not just a physical rest day, but it's also a spiritual rest day, which means being nourished in God. That's why we worship Him. That's why we gather together and sing and hear His Word preached and participate in the Lord's Supper. And in baptism, there's there's a spiritual element of nourishment and rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus calls us to come to Him to rest, but He's not talking about physically sleeping. He's talking about being found in Him, being associated with Him, and finding nourishment in Him. And of course, we don't just find that by physical rest, but we also find it by work, meaningful work. And so again and again, the Bible paints to us this concept, this picture of work, life, and Balancing those together. How do we balance those together? Well, as Bible readers, uh, back in episode seven of this podcast, I covered uh, some time management tips for us to think about. And uh, if you're interested in uh, specifically how this might work in life in terms of reading the Bible and how to manage our time to make time to read the Bible, then I would highly encourage you to go back and uh, check out that episode. I might reference a few things from it here shortly, but uh, that episode was specifically the time management for reading the Bible. This episode is going to have some overlap, but we're talking about work-life balance in general, which is going to make reading the Bible uh, relate to that here, there, uh, throughout. So I want to tackle just a couple uh, concepts for us in this episode and we'll run through these fairly quickly. Um, but again, we're answering the question, what does work-life balance look like for Christians? And we're going to go to the Bible to find those answers. We first looked at Second Peter a few minutes ago. Peter told us, as Christians, there's got to be a balance. There's got to be a supplementation of who we are. We, we need to be well-rounded people which means we don't want to be too extreme in one category or the other. We want to fight for balance in everything we do because that is good and right in God's sight. So we've talked about time management tips previously before and how it relates to the Bible, but in the world we live in, and this is kind of a sad thing, I think a lot of people just completely dismiss a balanced pattern that we've just seen in Genesis, and that we've seen reiterated in the Ten Commandments for how we should live. And I'm not only talking about the the busyness syndrome in America, but I'm even talking about the busyness syndrome in American churches, and that's a sad thing. And unfortunately, we've, we've let the culture that we live in and I'm talking specifically with gathered established churches we've let those cultures dictate the template that we follow in church life I can put it in kind of weird language but I'm sure you understand what I mean and that means that a a church in the middle of a big city such as New York City, the city that never sleeps, and by the way, I was looking online to make sure I was right with that because I could actually not remember if New York City or if Las Vegas was uh, the, the city that never sleeps. And I really found no help because I literally, in my search, uh, people were saying both. So uh, if you want to f- fire back at me a, a comment of a rebuke and tell me which one it is, that's fine. But hey, either way, New York City, Las Vegas, cities that never sleep. That's a terrible... Uh, identification to have, right? That means that there is no such thing as work-life balance. It just means you're wide open every day, and when you get burnt out, you just take a lot of drugs to help you, and that's a terrible lifestyle. But hey, churches that are in big cities have a hard time, I think, uh, relating to the culture and and in a lot of ways, this isn't like evil intent or anything like that. But in a lot of ways, churches just kind of adapt to whatever culture that they find themselves surrounded by. Or if you're kind of in a uh, a good old boy town, your church is going to be a good old boy church. Or if you're in like at a fast-paced kind of like Navy town, uh, which is the case for me, right? There, where there's a military base here close by. Uh, to where i live a lot of people uh, are just fluctuating in and out you got tons of families coming in for a 3 year stint somewhere around there for wherever the the husband or the or the wife who's in the military have their orders and they're just fine trying to find a church really quick for a few years that's going to have like some really good programs and just a quick fix for their family those kind of things and so you have churches scrambling to make as many events happen as possible in a short amount of time, as many programs and ministries as possible, just churches running wide open. Come to our church because we don't have one service. We have eight services, right? The, I mean, it's just the bigger, better, louder, crazier, that that kind of thing. Uh, if you have churches who are in uh, the the mega church or even Bible Belt area. I'm thinking about Texas, right? Everything is bigger in Texas, including your auditoriums and congregation size. And how do you relate to that? Well, you bring in a pastor who drives on stage in a Lamborghini, or you, I literally saw this here back uh, this past Easter. One of the marketing campaigns of one of these so-called churches was to give away a free car on Easter so that Obviously, you have people coming to your church for Easter, not another church. That I could go on and on about this kind of thing, but what I'm saying is, in in my opinion, uh, very charitable language. I could kind of go off on a lot of this stuff, and maybe you can kind of see my frustration for a lot of it. But in a more charitable way to say it, the busyness syndrome has hit American churches, and it seems like it's here to stay. and. I, I just find this to be so out of step with the concept of work-life balance that's found in the Bible, because my goodness, I mean, the church is made up of individuals, and if individuals are supposed to have a work-life balance, it seems absolutely ridiculous that churches would just throw that concept out just forget it completely. We're not going to have any kind of balance. We're just going to be wide open all the time. We're going to be bigger, better every single year. We're going to double our programs, double our congregation size, double our money. I mean, everything is growth, 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 growth. And that's a business structure. The church isn't supposed to be a business. Legally speaking, they're incorporations. corporations. There's, there's legal things that have to happen. Even as a nonprofit, you're still a nonprofit organization. right? There's paperwork. There's legalities, all that kind of stuff that follow. But in terms of um, growth and in terms of business model, we're not supposed to look like corporations. And that means that we shouldn't have the busyness syndrome. We should try to find a balance to work into life. So, A follow-up question for that for those of us who want to see, how does this relate to reading the Bible? Okay, if I'm supposed to have a balance, here's kind of a logic for us. If my life is supposed to have a balance, and I'm also supposed to be reading the Bible every day, if there's one thing that I've been pushing on this podcast and on my website, it is we should be reading the Bible every day. To me, that's just a, a no-brainer, and we might slip and fall from that here and there, but if there's one thing we need to be fighting for, it needs to be, I need to read the Bible for more than five minutes while I'm tying my shoes on the way to work, or for more than ten minutes in the car while I'm letting my audio Bible play um, in my vehicle. There there should be a legitimate, consistent, deep, rich time in God's word because it's not just reading words on a page it's communing with God i mean we understand the importance when we go on on a dinner date with our spouse or if we're catching up with a friend we haven't seen in a long time you wouldn't want to just see them in passing for 5 minutes and say, okay, okay, I'll see you in a couple months. I mean, if we really care about the person, we're we're going to do what's necessary to carve out that time. And by the way, when we're there with them, if we care enough about them, we're not going to be there in person with them and yet not even making eye contact because we can't put our phone down, right? There, there should be a meaningful, deep, rich relationship and time spent with that person. And it's the same because as we go to... The Bible. we're not just reading words, we're communing with God Himself in His Word. He dwells with us in His Word, and He communicates to us in His Word. And that means we should have a consistent time spent with Him. I mean, there's no more important person to spend time with, to put it in a comparison. And so if there's anyone that we want to carve out time for, and not just five minutes here or there, but like actual deep time, then it should be with God Himself and where He can be found, and that is in His Word. So if that's true, and I I hope you're with me in that concept, the question comes back, okay, Kevin, but I'm not a pastor, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a scholar— I'm trying to find out how in the world to spend five minutes with my spouse or with my kids because I'm crazy busy and I'm doing this, that, and everything else. So my question is, if you're talking about this deep, rich time consistent in God's Word, in the Bible, how much reading is too much and too little? And that's a great question. And while it is true that somebody such as a pastor is not a matter of of should or should not, but it's just a matter of if, if a pastor is going to be faithful to preach and apply the Word to God's people week in and week out, then it follows that he's going to be wrestling with the text on a higher level than those of us who are in the congregation, and that's because he's going to be working through Uh, discrepancies with English translations and the original language of the Bible would be Hebrew and Greek. He's going to be wrestling with how it relates to the culture, what false teachers are saying about this passage, what we might be hearing on social media. I mean, there's so many elements that have to be wrestled through uh, when you're preparing to teach and preach God's Word. So, okay, fine. That's going to be the bulk of their time during the work week, if you will. And so they kind of have a a one-up on us in some ways of just having the responsibility and the availability to just wrestle with the Word of God to come to a proper and correct meaning for what's being said on any given page. But that might not be true for us because, again, um, our time reading the Bible is kind of in our... uh, compartmentalization of life, it's in the hobby compartment. It's in the hobby drawer. It's the, yeah, if I get time to get to it, it'll be there. And and if you go back to my uh, reading and time management tips episode, I talk about how it really should be in the category that we put as necessity. It should be in the same compartment or drawer as Eating and sleeping and breathing are in because that's the importance of God. That's the importance of His word. The importance of His word and the fact that it has been preserved for us and brought to us uh, throughout the generations. We sh- we should have a high level of respect and a high level of desire to read it. But to be fair, life is crazy and those of us who were uh, born in the United States, a very busy-minded country without any say-so on our part, okay, it's not my fault that I live where I live and the time that I live and my life circumstances aren't always due to what I have actively done, so how do I sort out everything to make time to read God's Word? How much time is too much or too little? I think that a good, non-rushed, time that we should have for God's Word is an hour a day. I think if you can do more than that, and I think you should try to do more than that, I think I should always try to do more than that, then I think we should. But just at ground level, an hour a day, and that can be split up if it's better to do if it's hard if it's just absolutely hard to get one hour without interruptions and I, and I really mean when I say an hour, I say thirty minutes they should they should be uninterrupted time. The distraction should be put away. we should have uninterrupted fully engaged time in his word. But if an hour is just for whatever reason just undoable in unbroken uh, concentration, then I would say just split up two thirty minute segments. If you absolutely can't do that then I would say three 20 minute sessions but either way try to get that hour every single day that is so important for us to have just at a ground level just at a base level time I think that's maybe uh, the best the best bet for us uh, just just to start with and then we'll see you can tweak that throughout your life, uh, but always shoot for just at a bare minimum that every day. So I I think just if you want to find out more about that, if you want that to be addressed in a more uh, practical level, I would just refer you, check out episode seven of this podcast, because that's what the whole episode is about. But let's just keep moving in this work-life balance concept. So if that's true, then there's a follow-up question. How do we find a way to put into practice our reading into life? So if there's such thing as a work-life balance, I think there is, and we want to find how that intersects with life in terms of reading the Bible as one of those categories, then how do we find a way to kind of put into practice? We're taking in as we read the Word, and then as we live our lives, we're putting out what we have taken in and the way that we put that out is the the life aspect and the and the work aspect because we as people are employees or employers, husbands, wives, spouses, um, involved in business, involved in church, et cetera, et cetera, different programs and, and hobbies and all, all kinds of stuff that we are involved in. And so the question is how do we find a way to put it all into practice? How do we find a way to have it balanced? And I want to call uh, two things to your attention uh, in thinking about that. The first one is what Paul says in the book of First Corinthians. And in that book, Paul addresses almost every question of life because in... The book of First Corinthians, he works through almost every kind of what-if question you could possibly think of in terms of marriage, in terms of sexual purity, in terms of worship, in terms of the Lord's Supper, in terms of what we should eat and not eat. I mean, everything you could possibly think of, he handles in some way, shape, or form. And in the end of chapter 10, he comes to this conclusion, and he says, so this is in verse 31 of chapter 10, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that's kind of the driving template that Paul tells us to use, I mean, because he kind of says this is the overarching question, the driving principle for us as believers, regardless of what category we're talking about, right? Eating, drinking, or or whatever you do, do all to the, the glory of God, And uh, I think that's a good thing to live by. It also reminds me of, in my uh, particular denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, we have uh, what's called a uh, catechism, and what that is is a question-and-answer format, Um, and it it was historically, it was a, a teaching method for people to kind of be able to, as Peter tells us, give a an answer, give a defense for the hope that's in us. And um, it addresses uh, different topics. Uh, Think about uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, um, answering the question of what is sin or uh, what is faith, those kind of big questions. And the very first question of that catechism is one that's kind of recognized, even if you're not in the uh, Presbyterian world, it's the question that has just been recognized by uh, people of different denominations or even people who are non-denominational as uh, just a really good question, and it's the very first question of the Catechism to ask the question, what is the chief end of man, or what is what is the purpose of life for Humans, right? That's that's kind of the huge question. What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And um, you can see that they got this answer directly from uh, what Paul's talking about here in First Corinthians, because the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, and and that's that principle that Paul addresses that we're supposed to glorify God in everything we do. There's no category of life that is outside of glorifying God. And what that does is it shatters that busyness syndrome, because if the busyness syndrome creeps into the church and into the minds of Christians, we start applying that to our relationship with God and think, the more busy I am, the more glorifying I am, or the more I am glorifying God. And that's absolutely not what uh, Paul is addressing here. The, The chief end of mankind, our purpose, what we were made for, was to glorify God. One of the ways that we glorify God is by keeping His commandments. And by the way, one of the commandments is that we should rest. One of the commandments is that we're not supposed to work, and that is just so important for us to wrap our minds around, because there's such a thing as glorifying God by not working. There's such a thing as glorifying God by taking time away from dead-end pursuits of business to spend time reading His Word I mean that that to me that's just a life-changing concept for for us to get because it really helps kind of ingrain it into our minds that there's such a thing as a balance to to work and to life and it certainly applies to Christians as well because that's what the Bible wants to address the the main goal is not how busy or not busy we are the main goal is not by doing as much as absolutely possible. The goal is to glorify God, and that is to have a healthy balance in our lives. So what that means for our work life, our life as a husband or a wife, our life as a good uh, child if we're still living in the home as a a teenager, and our relationship in business, our relationship in our churches— extracurricular stuff, right? I mean, everything just gets to the idea of glorifying God in it and being balanced in our um, level of um, dependency on all of those things, right? We don't find our meaning only as being a husband. We don't find our meaning only as um, the business world that we're associated with, the vocation that we're involved with. We don't find meaning only in um, the level of engagement we're, uh, we're at with our uh, church that we attend, but we find our meaning as how well we are responsibly serving in all those capacities to the main goal, the main end, the main uh concept of glorifying God in them. And that's so important, so important for us to understand. And now here's where it bounces right back to the idea of reading the Bible. How do we carve out time for that? And should we carve out time for that? Well, I want to tell you something that you probably know already, but I'm going to share it with you anyways as a healthy reminder There's no such thing as the guy who wants to be a really good husband, so he forfeits time that he could be using spending, reading God's word, so that he can spend more time with his wife. Now, let me qualify what I'm saying. There's also not such a thing as a good husband who takes every opportunity to spend more time in God's Word instead of spending time with his wife. Now, what I mean by all of that is you can't divorce the two from each other. Because, number one, how do we learn how to be a good husband By reading God's Word, reading what marriage is, what the responsibilities and what the right picture of a husband is to his spouse, you read that and find the answer to that in the Bible, which means you have to spend time reading the Bible if you want to be a good husband. But then on the flip side, the whole reason that the Bible tells us these things and communicates to us an answer and a template for us as people is so that we can read that and take it and then apply it and then live in light of it in our lives. And that means that we don't rightly read it unless we go out and put it into practice. That really addresses the... Uh, terrible uh, dichotomy that I think isn't even a real one. It's a false dichotomy. It's, it's in other words, it's two things pitted against each other that aren't supposed to be pitted against each other. Um, they're kind of false rivalries, if you will. And that is um, heavy on doctrine and heavy on application, right? People normally, um, what what are you, an application guy or a doctrine guy? And somebody will give the answer of this or that. I go to this church because it's more doctrinal. I go to this church because it's all about life application. Well, it is never supposed to be an either or because right doctrine and good doctrine is only right and good if it's received and understood as something that's supposed to be applied in our lives. But at the same time, there's no such thing as fortune cookie verses of application if they're divorced from the doctrine that drives us to those applications. It has to be a both and, and the same thing can be said in our lives. There's no such thing as a good husband who isn't living in light of what a husband should be according to God's Word. But there's also not such a thing as a good husband who spends all his time in God's Word and never puts into practice those things by actually being a good husband in time and space to his wife. Well, the same can be said in terms of work, in terms of business, in terms of church life. And every other thing, if you're a baseball coach or whatever, whatever you are, uh, kind of an extracurricular world, all of those things have to be informed by God's Word, which means we have to spend time in our balance of work and life actually reading God's Word. But we also have to keep in mind that although I'm just a huge advocate of reading the Bible and spending time and finding time and sacrificing things, that there's no such thing as the guy or girl who spends all their time reading the Bible without ever actually going out and applying it and living in light of it, living in obedience to it. So it's a both and. There's no such thing as graduating from the application side. There's no such thing as graduating from the well-meaningful time spent reading and learning about all those things. It's a both and. And to wrap all this up, I want to call your attention to a very, very short book of the Bible. And it is the second letter of John, just normally referred to as second John. And one of the easiest ways to get to it because it's so short is just to turn all the way in the back of your Bible to the book of Revelation, the last book, and then just turn backwards a few pages you'll find the book of second john which is wedged right between first and third john second john is literally 13 verses long it's a super short book of the bible and i think that second john actually addresses this whole idea of what it means to have a work life balance for christians and even more particular in terms of learning and studying. Or for us in the 21st century, that means reading the Bible. How do we bring all that together? Well, John is going to agree with what I just got through saying in terms of it's a both and. And uh, just to call out a couple verses in here, uh, one of the things that he does over and over again in this letter is he brings this idea of truth, Truth being referred to as grounded and tethered to Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, He says in the high priestly prayer of John 17 about God's people, sanctify them, that is, keep them holy, keep them set apart from the world and grow them. Sanctify them in truth your word is truth. God's word is truth, and Jesus is the word of God. So John kind of uses this phrase as an all-encapsulating idea of um, being unified with Jesus and also living in light of his teaching and what he has revealed to us. And here's how he says it. He uses the phrase, I mean, I see at least five in the first four verses, the idea of truth, and he says this, um, the idea of loving in truth, the idea of knowing in truth, the idea of truth abiding in us, and then he says this, which is really interesting when he gets past his greeting of the letter and starts talking... in in the bulk of it, he says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. So the idea of truth, according to John, is something of possessing. It's something of loving people in truth. It's something um, that is with us, abides with us, but it's also something that we exemplify something we put into practice. We walk in truth. We live out our lives in truth. And how do we do that? In accordance with what the truth is. So there's our both and of kind of the idea of the reading the Bible and then putting it into practice. We receive the truth, we study the truth, we come to understand the truth but then we walk in the truth. We walk in agreement with what we've learned, what we've read, what we've studied. And the second way that John addresses this is he uses the phrase of abiding or remaining. This is one of Jesus' favorite phrases in the gospel of John, that we remain close to him. And one of the ways that John here uh, gives us kind of a, a picture of what this means as he says this warning. He says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And that relates exactly to what we uh, just talked about in terms of a both and idea and the fact that we don't graduate or grow beyond either spending the time reading or spending the time putting it into practice. Because John says, we receive the truth, but we also walk in the truth. We abide in Jesus, but we also aren't supposed to go on ahead without abiding in the teaching of Christ. I can't help but think of somebody who is in desperate need of help and has all kinds of problems in their life and trying to find a way to sort out what to do. And can you imagine this person calling for some kind of counseling meeting? They sit down with the pastor and they start to lay out all their problems and the pastor opens his mouth to start giving them biblical sound advice. And about one minute into it, the person gets up and says, thank you so much for your help. I got to go. And they just run out. Well, they didn't stick around to hear the whole thing. They didn't stick around to hear uh, how this relates to that and maybe pray through some of the uh, warnings and concerns that should be had. I mean, there's, you know, all those elements that play into it. And that's kind of the idea you have here, everyone who goes on ahead and doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ. Uh, Another example it reminds me of is the example of uh, the parable of the good seed and the good soil that Jesus talks about in the Gospels. And he uses the analogy that there's such a thing as seed falling on good ground and bad ground and the good ground, it takes up firm root and produces fruit and flourishes and remains healthy. And that's the right way to receive the, the seed. But then there's also the example of a seed that's on rocky ground. It doesn't produce any kind of firm root. It's not rooted and grounded. So it, eventually, you know, it grows uh, just a little bit, but then it withers and dies because there's no there's no root to support it. And uh, Jesus relates the idea of it falling on bad soil as well to somebody who kind of sticks around for a little while and then when the troubles and cares of life happen, then they completely turn away. And he's not talking about losing salvation in this sense, but he's talking about uh, the difference from a right way to receive the word and a wrong way to receive the word. And John has this in mind of somebody who goes on ahead and doesn't abide, doesn't remain rooted and grounded in the teaching of Christ. That person doesn't have God. John doesn't say that person lost his salvation. He says that person just doesn't have God, period. Somebody who has God, somebody who walks in truth is somebody who sees The need for a balance in life. We're supposed to walk in the truth, but we're also supposed to remain to abide in the teaching of Christ. And that's our work-life balance for Christians. It intersects in every category of life. We ultimately live to glorify God in every single thing that we do, but we want to dwell with God. God can be found in His Word that's been given to us, but God also wants us to walk in accordance with it. And so these are so many things for us to consider today in a a kind of deep episode, if you will, because these are big questions of life. These are questions that all of us are thinking about. We might not be able to articulate them in a work-life balance uh, framework, but we're thinking about them certainly because they're every aspect of our everyday lives. And so I hope that this helps you wrap your head around the idea of work-life balance and how there is a biblical principle uh, communicated to us that life and work are supposed to have a balance. But we also want to remember that there is such a thing of a balance of work-life to Bible reading. There's the work that we put into it. There's the time spent reading His Word. There's the nourishment and refreshment that comes to us. But there's also the element of application and we want to be well rounded and balanced in all of it. And I don't know if this is a news flash to you or not, but we need the Lord's help with this. And this is where prayer comes in. This is where we must dwell with God, not only in his word, but in prayer. And we ask for help. And we see him work. We see him be faithful uh, to, to give us help, to, to sanctify us in that truth, to sanctify us in what we've read and to sanctify us by applying it in our lives through the Holy Spirit. So I hope this episode has helped you tremendously. And if it has, I would love to hear some feedback from you. You can find me on social media, but you can also uh, find me over at betterbiblereading.com. And all you got to do is click on the contact uh, page. You can send me an email. You can leave a comment on this uh, post on the website. And if you've... It, incredibly been helped I would certainly appreciate if you haven't done it before to leave me a review on iTunes because all that's going to do is push up this podcast episode a little bit higher in the sea of millions and millions of podcasts that are on iTunes and it's going to make it that much more easier for other people to find who might not know me personally and don't know about this show that can just be a great help that you can give me in terms of getting getting the news out there that there's such a thing as the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I'd love to give you a gift if you have been helped uh, with some of the things I've been putting out. Um, I would love to send you a free copy of my own commentary that I've written on the Book of Second John, and it is pretty easy reading. As you heard me mention, John Second John is only thirteen verses long. Uh, but what I do is I write commentaries. For books of the Bible. They're not necessarily as academic as some of the high-level ones you can find at Christian bookstores, uh, but nonetheless, they are uh, my attempts to work through the book, and I think that it will be uh, helpful for you if you want to spend a little bit of time to read it. It's not very long, but it's my free gift to you, and it'll be in ebook format. So, if you're interested in that, you can go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash free commentary. You'll be able to find it just simple electronic download. You'll have it at your disposal, and I hope that you'll be helped with it. It's my gift to you for spending your time with me on this podcast and on the website, and I certainly appreciate that. So hope you have a great rest of the day. Again, you can go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash free commentary, and you can find that commentary for download. Have a great one. Thanks for tuning in to the Better Bible Reading Podcast. This is Kevin Morris. Take care.